This is um, A.E. Dick Howard. I have the privilege of being a professor of law at the University of Virginia. I have been for, for some years, uh, also active in public affairs in Virginia, uh, counseling the governor and legislators and others, but my primary place is in the classroom. I mean, I'm a professor, a teaching professor, as well as, of course, writing about the Constitution. So just a brief overview. Bold Dominion is a state politics explainer. We're very grateful for you to come speak to us both about the work that you did on the 1971 Constitution and the Virginia Constitutions as a whole. If you could start off sort of giving our listeners, if if you were to explain Virginia's state constitution to someone who barely knew anything about it, could you give us a brief overview? Well, if I, you know, if someone asked me about the Virginia Constitution, I think I would first say something about state constitutions generally. I mean, most, most folks know a little bit about the U.S. Constitution. They are aware of it, at least. And But um, state constitutions are really quite different. They are, they preceded the federal constitution. The states at the time of revolution in 1776 were writing state constitutions years before the framers met at Philadelphia to write the federal constitution. So they started earlier. They are much more detailed, much more specific. They cover ground that um, the federal constitution doesn't talk about. Indeed, I would say day-to-day life in most people's uh, minds would be more nearly affected by state constitutions than by the federal documents. So it's an important part of American life. If you could just provide a quick definition of state constitution and constitutional government. Okay. Um, What is a state constitution? It's the document that lays down the fundamental law, uh, rights of the people, structure of government, the fundamental outline of government in a state. It's subject, of course, to the federal constitution. Federal law is supreme. So a state constitution can't do less than the federal constitution. It has to accept those limitations. But state constitutions can do more. Uh, They are free to go beyond the federal constitution if the state bill of rights, for example, enlarges the protection against unlawful search and seizure beyond the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, then the state constitution can do that. So it's a fundamental document within which the governor, the legislature, the courts, and government generally operate. So it's a, in a federal system like, like ours with the U.S. Constitution at the top, then the next story in that building is the state constitution's. And could you define constitutional government and then just briefly explain how our state constitution has affected Virginia's government? Well, constitutional government, I think, is um, something which began to take modern shape in the 18th century. Before that, you had rule by monarchs, for example, the English kings or the French kings. You had the powerful place of the church, especially in the Middle Ages. So most of what you were permitted to do, allowed to do in day-to-day life back in those days was either what a monarch had approved or the church dictated. That began to change in the 18th century and what we would call constitutional government emerges. And constitutional government really tries to balance two somewhat, not competing interests, but two values that are somewhat in conflict or in tension with each other. 
One is that we believe in accountable government, government by the people, that the people should be able to elect uh, officials of government who carry out the will of the people. On the other hand, we put into place a constitution in which the people limit the powers of government. And indeed, if you think of a constitution, while it's in effect, limits what the people can do. So I think the, the, the core value of constitutional government is that the people are empowering them, themselves and their representatives to carry out the function of, functions of government. And yet at the same time, they're playing constitutional limits both on those representatives and on themselves. I mean, I think that's a, a, a critical point because it, it balances on the one hand majorities doing what they please, and on the other hand, denying majorities what their general will is. It's a difficult balance to maintain. I think in American history, we've done a reasonably good job of doing that. Uh, it doesn't always work, as Civil War, for example, was a time it clearly didn't work. But constitutional government reflects enlightenment values uh, from the, in particular, the 18th century in Western Europe. I think Today, in fact, virtually every country in the world has a written constitution. There are only one or two exceptions. So it's, it's assumed that if you are going to have government of any modern kind, you will have a constitution. Now, I grant that a lot of those constitutions are pieces of paper. I mean, they're not actually enforced. There are countries that have constitutions. I mean, China, for example, has a, a very attractive constitution. But in China, it's the will of the party. But the party says goes what no matter what the constitution will say. So that's not that's not constitutional government. I think real constitutional government is what we hope is in place in, in America, namely accountable government on the one hand, but the people limiting their own power on the other. About the uh, Virginia Constitution specifically, uh, Virginia really started it off because in May of 1776, the convention that was meeting in Williamsburg um, instructed their delegates in Philadelphia to introduce the Resolution for Independence. And on the same day, they started work on a Declaration of Rights and a frame of government for Virginia. So Virginia really led, led the pack in terms of getting state constitutions in place. So from that time to the, that this, I'd say that it's important to realize that um, state constitutions are periodically revised and certainly frequently amended. Uh, Virginia, for example, has had, depending on how you count them, six or seven constitutions from 1776 to the present time. So the 1971 constitution, the one we'll be talking about some this afternoon, really is the latest in a uh, succession of constitutions over the years. Also, I just want to briefly apologize. I realize that the way that I have my monitor set up, if I'm looking at you on the Zoom screen, it looks like I'm not looking at the camera. So I apologize if it looks like I'm staring off into the distance. Oh, I know you're looking <laughs> at your notes. Um, <laughs> and we're not on camera for your purposes anyway. So <laughs> people will just be hearing us talk. So I guess to begin with 1776, what are the founding principles of that state constitution? Well, it's a striking document. Um, in fact, there are two documents when the framers in Williamsburg in May of 1776 began work. 
they actually first they wrote a Declaration of Rights. Uh, then they they wrote a separate document, the frame of government, the actual government of Virginia itself. And the, the reason there are two documents is that it's steeped in what you might call social compact theory, the ideas of John Locke, namely that you are uh, given in, you, you come into society with inherent rights, inalienable rights that do not depend on government. The government regulates life in various respects, but it doesn't create rights. Those rights are brought in just because you are who you are. So it's very Lockean that the framers in 76 would, as I say, write two separate documents, which finally are put together. Today, you look at the Virginia Constitution and the Declaration of Rights is simply Article One of the Constitution. But as far as founding principles go, I think if you compare the George Mason's 1776 Declaration of Rights with the Declaration of Independence that was agreed to in Philadelphia, uh, one realizes the uh, influence that the Virginia document had on the Declaration of Independence on Thomas Jefferson's draft for that for that document. And it begins by talking about uh, that society is created for the common benefit, for the gen for the liberty of all people. It's a very sweeping kind of declaration. And then it sets out a, a number of uh, concrete guarantees of rights, uh, procedural rights in criminal cases, for example. Uh, and these rights are uh, often drawn from British constitutionalism, from um, Magna Carta, from the English Petition of Rights, the English Bill of Rights of 1689. So in many ways, the Virginia Declaration of Rights is a sort of a merger, a synthesis of traditional rights, which the colonists as uh, English colonists would have understood to be their inheritance, a combination of those traditional rights with more sweeping declarations that um, really arise in the revolutionary period itself. It's also interesting that that early document um, has aspirational language. It's not just a set of concrete legal rights. Um, there's a sense of what the values of citizenship are, the, um, what it is a citizen ought to know about um, founding a free society. And there's interesting language at the end of that document that says that uh, free government depends on a, what Mason called a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. The notion that one should constantly, as, as the years pass, go back and reconsider, rethink, reaffirm those rights that are set out in the founding document. So the first constitution is more than simply a structure of government. I mean, it is that, of course. It sets out the three branches and what their duties are and the like. But it's, it's a much more sweeping document that in many ways is a very enlightenment period document. And I have to say that so much of what's said in that founding Declaration of Rights um, still, uh, still obtains today. So I did some research and I read a few articles that you've written along the years about the uh, successive documents and... I didn't realize this, but the executive branch was deliberately made weak in the 1776 Constitution. Can you explain or explain to our listeners why that was? Well, it's quite striking because today we assume that 
at the federal level, the president, and at the state level, the governor, uh, have pretty extensive powers. And we in Virginia, for example, having just gone through the COVID pandemic, are certainly aware that Governor Northam has used executive orders in a way that uh, probably wouldn't have been unimaginable in the founding period. 1776, the revolution was underway. The colonists, now about to become members of the uh, United States, um, declaring independence, have very fresh memories of royal governors and also royal courts. And so in the colonial period, the governor and the judges were uh, agents of the crown. And the nearest thing to a voice of the people in the colonial period was the was the lower house of the legislature. In Virginia, that would have been the House of Burgesses. So I think that sense that legislatures are closer to the people carried over into the 1776 Constitution. The uh, framers of the first Virginia Constitution deliberately made the legislature the the primary branch. I mean, they had a theory of separation of powers, but I think the fact was legislative supremacy, that the governor, governor, in fact, was not elected by the people. He was elected by the legislature. It was as if we had a parliamentary system that the governor depended on the legislature. And to weaken him further, there was a council of state that the governor, who had, and the governor had to take the council's advice. So the governor was really something of a cipher. And the, the judges had uncertain powers. It wasn't clear how much power they would have. So the, the action was in the legislature. Now, it didn't take too long before people realized that legislatures could uh, mess about with your rights as well as uh, judges or, or governors. So that changed over time. Uh, if you look at other state constitutions in 1777, for example, New York wrote its first constitution, and in that constitution, the governor was actually elected by the people. Uh, and then as you moved on through the 19th century, the framers of successive Virginia constitutions put more and more limits on legislative power. So um, so even though the Declaration of Rights survived pretty much as it was set out at the beginning, the frame of government changed considerably with limits being placed on legislative power and courts and governors uh, getting more power than they would have had at the very beginning. So from my understanding, um, in the 1776 Constitution, the state of Virginia was apportioned a certain way so that east of the Blue Ridge, white male voters would have the majority in the General Assembly. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, the framers <laughs> didn't, didn't really... Uh, equalize apportionment among different parts of the state. Um, even though the Declaration of Rights was very progressive and forward-looking, the, uh, the frame of government in terms of uh, how you would apportion legislative seats was frankly very backward-looking. They left apportionment in the uh, General Assembly and the House of Delegates and Senate pretty much as it had been under the in the House of Burgesses in the colonial period. And that meant uh, very much a system in favor of old Virginia, the small, older Tidewater counties, um, as opposed to the Piedmont counties or the people in, uh, in the Valley of Virginia or in the Transmontane regions. All those, those were the areas that were growing in population. The 
uh, tidewater area was pretty much static, or even some of them were some of the counties were declining, and so the <laughs> framers left things as they were, which clearly favored the the old order in Virginia. Do we see any remnants today of that original apportionment? Well, we certainly saw it up until the 1960s. Um, I mean, I was born and raised in Richmond, and I can remember an era of the bird machine uh, when uh, that we had malapportionment in Virginia so that rural areas were disproportionately represented as opposed to urban areas. The, the rural counties had disproportionate representation of the General Assembly. That came to an end with the Supreme Court's one person, one vote decisions in the 1960s, Baker versus Carr, Reynolds versus Sims. Um, and that meant because of federal Supreme Court decisions, Virginia and every other state had to reapportion their legislature so that now we're under the uh, regime of one person, one vote. But it took federal, it took the U.S. Supreme Court to finally achieve that. Otherwise, we might still be living under a, a regime of malapportionment. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss with 1776, or would you like to move on to the state constitution of 1830? Well, let's see. one other thing that strikes me of interest, um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, our university's founder, uh, you'd think he would have been in Williamsburg helping to write the first Virginia constitution, but he was in Philadelphia. He was uh, with the Continental Congress. He actually wrote up a draft for a Virginia Constitution, but by the time it reached Williamsburg, the convention had done most of the work. So his ideas did not really take root in the first Constitution. And for the next 50 years, he complained about it. I mean, he was bitterly now. I suspect, <laughs> I can't get inside Mr. Jefferson's skull, but I suspect one reason he didn't like that first Constitution was that he wasn't there. And he probably couldn't imagine writing a constitution without Thomas Jefferson <laughs> and, uh, and his say about it. But he, he said he didn't like it because the franchise was too limited. I mean, uh, you had to own property to, to vote. And he, he thought that was unfair. There were men who had fought for the in the revolution who, if they were property less, couldn't vote. He attacked malapportionment. You and I have just talked about that. He thought the uh, malapportionment weighed against the rights of Western Virginia. Um, he was unhappy with legislative supremacy. He said that violated the principle of separation of powers. And um, he also said the Constitution really wasn't thoroughly legitimate because uh, the same body of men who are writing ordinary laws for Virginia uh, tried to write the Constitution. He said, you can't do that. You have to have a separate convention to write a Constitution a convention elected by the people for the purpose of writing a constitution to put it on a plane superior to ordinary law. So uh, Mr. Jefferson was no fan of that 1776 constitution. In the state constitution of 1830, do they relax the property qualification for voting rights? That's right. As soon as the 1776 constitution had been adopted, uh, as time passed, in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, reformers, Jefferson and many other people, said that Virginia needed to call a constitutional convention to revise 
the first constitution, that it needed to be updated, uh, the franchise needed to be enlarged, malapportionment needed to be addressed, and so forth. And it took years and years for that to happen. I mean, the petitions were filed with the General Assembly. They, they came to nothing until finally, in 1829 and 30, a convention was called um, to, to rewrite the Constitution. The reformers started off thinking they had a pretty good shot at um, significant reform. But as the convention wore on, uh, that error passed. And by the time the convention had concluded, by the time they had written the Constitution of 1830, the changes they had made were modest. They slightly en enlarged the franchise. They adjusted seats in the General Assembly. Uh, the governor still didn't have that much power. So it wasn't that much of a change from the, from the outset. So it meant that um, if reformers wanted to carry the day, uh, they had not yet done it in 1829 and 30. So is there anything... Um I mean, this, the second state constitution came 60 years after the first, or roughly so. Is there anything significant about this first reform of the constitution? Well, I think the significance of the convention of 1829 and 30 is that it was a reminder that the constitution is not static, that it is open to amendment, to change, to evolution over the years. So it's set in in motion, uh, an ongoing process, so that from time to time, since 1830, we have seen further revisions. Uh, it was only 20 years before yet another convention was called in 1850-51, and by that time, the, the uh, reformers really uh, did have more uh, wind in the sails. They were able to achieve, achieve something like a white male universal suffrage. Obviously, slaves clearly were not in the, in the picture at that point. Women didn't yet have the vote, but among the white male population, it was pretty nearly universal suffrage. And that convention also, um, finally, 75 years after the revolution, that convention agreed that the governor should be elected by the people. So <laughs> it took a long time for Virginia to reach that point, but they finally said, well, yes, the people ought to have the right to elect the governor. They also began to trim the legislature sales somewhat. They began to put limits on legislative power. And that's important because whereas the federal constitution is a grant of power, which is to say it grants the president, the Congress, the court certain powers, they're broad powers, but they still have to be traced to the constitution. The theory of a state constitution, including Virginia's, is that the legislature has all powers, plenary powers, if other than those that are denied to it by either the U.S. or the state constitution. So it's important as you look through the 19th century to realize that people began to worry more and more about whether the legislature was really getting out of bounds, and they started putting more limits on its, for example, its power to to uh, to raise issue bonds. Uh, in the 19th century, Virginia was investing in turnpikes and railroads and that sort of thing. And a lot of those investments, frankly, were not very sound ones. So people were concerned about that. So once again, you have a convention which reminds us of the organic, unfolding, evolutionary nature of the Virginia Constitution. So looking at my notes, not only did they... Um 
outlined in this constitution that you can now elect most public officials, including governor, but they also establish circuit and appellate courts. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. The The court system has evolved. It's um, uh, interesting that uh, when the courts first started out after 1776, it was unclear what the power of the courts would be, just what they would uh sort of disputes they would be allowed to, to, to settle. In the 1790s, um, some judges on the Virginia Supreme Court uh, began to say in dictum that if the legislature enacted some statute in conflict with the Constitution, the judges would be obliged to strike it down. Now, that was a power that John Marshall didn't declare for the U.S. Supreme Court until 1803. So it's interesting that even before Marbury versus Madison, that famous case was decided by Marshall, the Virginia courts already begun to say that they had the power of judicial review. So by the 19th century, the power of the courts was being enlarged. And of course, aside from constitutional questions, there was a lot more private law to be settled because Virginia, by the mid 19th century, was becoming economically a more diverse state. There were now railroads, there were now industries of various kinds. We were not simply an agrarian society anymore. There was more commerce and trade. Richmond, for example, was becoming an important commercial city. So as a result, it was thought necessary to in, to sort of stretch out, to sketch out um, the courts that we would have in Virginia as they did in the 1851 Constitution. So does the state constitution of 1851 carry a certain significance to it that the state constitution of 1830 didn't? Well, I think it's the principal achievement was um, enlarging the franchise. It, by 1851, the franchise was more nearly what Thomas Jefferson in 1776 had hoped it would be. It took a long time to get there. But I think one of the interesting thing, themes that we ought to be uh, talking about today is to consider how the Constitution defines what I would call the political community, which is to say, who gets to vote and who doesn't, who counts and who doesn't count. At the beginning, it was people that own property. Clearly that. It was a very limited franchise. The majority of Virginians, even among white males, had no voice in the government of their state. That began to change in the 19th century, uh, after the age of Jefferson and the age of Jackson, the whole country was becoming more democratic than it had been at the outset. Um, in the early, the founders' generation, there was still more an air of aristocratic privilege. Um, by the age of Jackson, that had begun to change. So a number of states revised their constitutions in the 1820s, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, some others. Um, Virginia had that convention in 1829 and 30, but it didn't really achieve as much reform as finally came about in 1850 and, and, and 51. So by, by mid-century, uh, the political community was being uh, defined in much more generous terms than it had been in previous years. So I know that right now we're approaching the Civil War. Can you talk about what's going on in Virginia during this time? Uh, in constitutional terms, of course, they, increasingly the debate was about slavery. Slave owners 
starting in the 1820s and 30s, were increasingly concerned about the rise of abolitionist sentiment in the North. Uh, Northern states were not all that progressive, but uh, they did have more freedmen. Uh, black freedmen were a rarity in the South, but they were becoming more common in the North. Abolitionists were uh, making much more noise about wanting to restrict slavery. So throughout the mid-19th century, from the 1820s onwards, um, as new states in the Union were added, there tended to be compromises uh, that for each non-slave, each free state that was brought in, there'd be one new slave state. So it, it kept a kind of balance in the U.S. Senate, which actually was more pro-Southern, pro-slavery, than it would have been if the if Congress had been based simply on population. But since each state has two senators, regardless of the state's population, through the mid through the decades in the mid-19th century, there was this kind of balance being achieved to uh, sort of satisfy the southern states. And even so, uh, slaveholders in Virginia and in the South generally were increasingly worried that the abolitionists might actually be able to achieve their aim. So slavery becomes the central issue in that period. And of course, it leads up finally, after very saber rattling, to 1861, the firing on Fort Sumter, uh, Abraham Lincoln's calling up of troops, and then finally secession conventions being uh, being held. And I know over the years, I, as, as I mentioned, I was born and raised in Richmond, and I, when I went through my school days, um, it was still in the era, the sort of age of the lost cause, the kind of moonlight and magnolias view of Southern history. Slavery wasn't much talked about. There was kind of a notion that, well, maybe slaves were not that badly off on southern plantations. And you still hear the argument that some people make that the Civil War was about states' rights. Well, in a secondary sense, that was true, but you only have to read the uh, secession ordinances, specifically Virginia's ordinance of secession, in which um, slavery is put front and center. I mean, that the threat to slavery uh, is the reason given for Virginia's seceding. Now, obviously, Lincoln's calling up troops had something to do with that, but at the, we all know, I think we know that, that general history pretty well. What it meant at the state level, of course, was the uh, state constitution uh, had to be called into play. There was a curious document in 1864, Virginia Constitution, but it wasn't really adopted by or voted on by people in the larger part of Virginia. Um, there were bits and pieces of Virginia, Alexandria, for example, some territory on the eastern shore, that sort of thing, which uh, were occupied by Union troops. And so you had a constitute, you had a loyal government, in effect, in based in Alexandria, and then a rebel government based in Richmond. So, in effect, competing factions, both uh, both uh, holding themselves forward as the legitimate government of Virginia. So the Loyalist government passed an 1864 constitution, which uh, provided for equality. It was based on what later became the 13th and 14th Amendments. But that, that historians and lawyers have debated over the years whether that really counts as a Virginia constitution since it was adopted by 
um, such a small percentage of the population. And indeed, it's unclear. It seems there was some kind of referendum, but the record doesn't make it clear exactly how that took place. So, in a sense, the 1864 Constitution is really a, a sidebar to the principal story. We reach 1869, and this seems like a constitution that deliberately enfranchised black men specifically. Um, would you like to talk more about this version of the constitution? Oh, that's a fascinating constitution. It, um, when the Civil War was over after Appomattox and the final, final end of the uh, rebellion, the um, price of readmission to the Union for Southern state, conf former Confederate states was, uh, first they had to ratify the 14th Amendment, which they did unwillingly, but then they had to adopt new progressive state constitutions. And the traditional conservative pro-Confederate legal order in Virginia was not in place. The, they were not the ones in, in the saddle. So the convention that was held in Richmond in 1867-68 was a convention, a reform convention. It had roughly 100 members, about 25 of whom were, were black. That had never happened in Virginia. This was the first time African-Americans had ever sat in a Virginia constitutional convention. So that convention set out to be, to put into place, for example, a, the first statewide public education system in Virginia. There'd never been one before. There'd been spotty here in their schools, but nothing on it statewide basis and that convention achieved the or ratified the uh, enfranchisement of african americans blacks would have an equal vote equally access to the ballot as as whites in virginia so as of 1870 when that post civil war that reconstruction constitution was in place um in our, returning to our theme of inclusiveness and um, and defining the political community, uh, the 1870 Constitution defined that more broadly than any Constitution had done before that time. So I know that in the Constitution of 1864, which you earlier said is contested whether or not it's a legitimate state constitution, that uh, voting by ballot was introduced. But then, so in the Constitution of 1870, is that firmly introduced as a provision? Is, is this now a part of the Constitution? Well, it's, it's interesting that, you know, if you go back to early Constitution, say in the first part of the 19th century, um, voting was by voice. You know, you'd go to the polling place and your neighbors and friends, or maybe you're not so friends, knew how you voted. Well, uh, then there came into being what I think the, some political scientists call the Australian ballot. Apparently, they were the first ones to introduce the, the, the written or secret ballot so that your how you voted would not be known. And this obviously became a flashpoint in debates over the years because um, if everybody knows how you voted, then there's the opportunity for um, pressure being put on voters or uh, the, the various um, inducements to vote one way or the other. So that's been something of a, uh, as I say, a flashpoint in 19th century debate. Can you talk about the significance of this state constitution providing a method of amendment? 
I'm sorry, producing what amendment? Providing a method of amendment. Oh, and a method of amendment. Um, you know, that's, that's very interesting. The 1776 Constitution said nothing at all about amendments. I think the framers of that Constitution assumed that if the time came to rewrite the Constitution, that Virginia would just simply have a convention and do it. So there was no provision for me. We, we find that sort of fantastical. We just take for granted that there will be a clause, an amendment clause in a constitution. And interestingly, at the 1829-30 convention, um, the, the motion was made on the floor to have a, to add an amendment clause, but the conservatives, John Randolph of Roanoke, for example, who was a famous speaker of that generation, uh, opposed having an amendment clause. He said, this constitution is, is a bad one. He, he hated reform. And he said, this constitution we're adopting is bad enough. If you put an amending clause in there, people will make it even worse. So <laughs> Randolph's argument carried the day. It was not until 1851 that the Virginia constitution had a provision for amending. So increasingly, Amendments have become very common. I mean, you go to the polling place in, in Virginia, chances are you'll have not only candidates for office, but you'll have proposed amendments, some of which you will never have heard of because they're often fairly technical amendments. <laughs> they are things that uh, haven't been given a lot of notice, but it is very easy to propose and adopt amendments today compared to the old days. So I know that this state constitution also established a statewide system of free public schools uh, and introduced voting by ballot and extended suffrage to black men. Would you like to talk any more about the significance of what the state constitution did for Virginians? Well, I think to sort of sum up what was happening after the Civil War was that uh, the traditional white conservative leadership had was pushed aside and did not have a direct hand in the Right, there were conservatives at the convention in 1867-68, but they were in the minority. So I, until at least our time, I'd say progressive forces had more influence in that Reconstruction Constitution than they had thereafter, which I'm sure we'll get to talking about 1901-1902, which is really a very different story. Yeah, I think this is a great segue point. So how did it go from 1869, 1870, uh, 30 years later, and you have 1902 that's just completely marked with white supremacy? You can imagine the uh, distaste that conservative Virginians after the Civil War had for the 1870 Constitution. They, they called it the Underwood Constitution because a federal judge named Underwood presided over the convention um, he was also the same judge that presided over the treason trial of Jefferson Davis. So that was a way of sticking a thumb in the eye of conservative Virginians at that time. So as time moved along, Reconstruction came to an end in 1877, when the last federal troops were withdrawn from the South. There was a disputed presidential election. Uh, we know a little bit about that today. But there was a dispute in 1876 as to which candidate, the Republican or Democrat, Tilden or Hayes, which one had won. And they finally had a, when they finally compromised that, one aspect of the compromise was ending federal troops in the South. So once Reconstruction was at an end, 
then the backsliding began. Southern states started passing laws that restricted the rights of African Americans. They couldn't openly take the vote away because they, they, could, they, they couldn't reinstitute slavery. The 13th Amendment took care of that. So even though they couldn't put blacks back into slavery again, they, the, the rights of African Americans were increasingly restricted, for example, by so-called Jim Crow laws that really made it difficult for, for black agricultural laborers to leave the land. And the former Confederate states, the Southern states, started rewriting their Reconstruction constitutions. The first one happened in Mississippi in 1890. Other southern states followed suit. And then finally, a convention was called in Richmond in 1901-1902. The delegates who were elected to that convention, this is the post-Reconstruction Constitution, uh, the delegates who went to that convention were openly pledged to white supremacy. They made it clear that they were there to represent the interest of white Virginians, and to get African-Americans out of the polls and off the ballot so that they, they simply would not be a part of the uh, those who enjoyed the franchise in post-Reconstruction Virginia. It looks like at every state constitution there is there's amendments, there's progress, we're moving forward, and the 1902 state constitution just feels like a major backslide in all the progress that had been made. Where do you... What do you have to say about the 1902 Constitution in the grand scheme of all of Virginia's seven constitutions? You're absolutely right. The sweep of the 19th century through the 1870 Constitution was more and more inclusive of white male universal suffrage as of 1851, African Americans added to the roles in 1870. Women, of course, were not yet added. That didn't happen until the early to early 20th century. But otherwise, the, the direction was towards inclusivity. Well, that changed dramatically in 1901-1902 because that convention, they couldn't reinstitute slavery, but they were determined to move the clock as far back as they could. And they had, they had a template at hand. They, Mississippi in 1890, in rewriting its constitution, had used the poll tax had used so-called understanding clauses that required that you be able to interpret the state constitution. Um, Confederate veterans and their sons were automatically enfranchised. Property owners were typically enfranchised. So the target, the crosshairs were on black voters. And the delegates in Richmond in 1901-1902 made no secret of their intentions. Debates of that convention are in print. They're readily available. We aren't really surprised when we read those debates of what they actually did and how the delegates behaved. It's shocking all the same how today, I suppose, if you had white supremacy on your mind and you wanted to undermine the right to vote of black citizens, you you wouldn't say that. I mean, you'd, you'd be much more delicate or indirect. You might talk about the integrity of the election or safeguarding the ballot. You, you'd dress it up in nice language, but they didn't do that in 1901-1902. When you read those debates, um, one of the delegates said, for example, he was, it was to be understood, he was there to protect the interests of white people. He was a white man looking out for white people. 
and the delegates talked about the inherent right of of the Anglo-Saxons to 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 rule that that's the way things were and that blacks were going to be second-class citizens and they ought to, ought to accept that. And indeed, when the question was raised in the debates in 1901, 1902, as to, well, you know, what place is there for African-Americans in, in Virginia? And one of the de- delegates said, well, that's easy enough. They belong on the land. They belong in the cotton fields and the tobacco barns, and they're meant to be agricultural laborers. That's the their place, and they simply have to have to accept that. Fascinating argument, dramatic arguments that uh, delegates induced um, adduced history and and theology. They said you can look at the thousands of years of civilization, and black people have contributed nothing to it. They've had no advancements in art, the arts, or the, the sciences. They've been white contri- contributions. Theology was brought into play. I mean, delegates said it's God's plan. God created the white race as the superior race, and therefore we have to write a constitution that reflects that. So any number of arguments were made. Um, the delegates said education would be wasted on, on, on black black people. Maybe they, you might teach them the rudiments of, of arithmetic or reading, but if you taught them to read, they wouldn't read something good like the Bible. They would go off and read something like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and get some uppity ideas and uh, not remember their place. And least of all, could you imagine, said these delegates, uh, blacks uh, exercising the professions. I mean, it's unimaginable that a black would uh, practice law or practice medicine. So there was this notion that the African Americans of Virginia were distinctly subordinate class in every sense, socially, legally, and 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 politically. What was the public's response to this constitution? Well, it depends on what public you mean. Uh, it's you know the the racial aspect was front and center. I mean, Carter Glass was a delegate at the convention, and he someone asked whether these franchise provisions would discriminate. And he said, discriminate, what do you think we're here for? We're here to discriminate just as far as the federal constitution will allow us. And the U.S. Supreme Court in a test case in 1898 had had upheld the Mississippi constitution. There was a challenge to that constitution and that challenge was rebuffed. The Supreme Court said that constitution was okay. So the um, convention in, in Richmond 1901, 1902, used a number of techniques. They uh, used the poll tax. It's a dollar and a half a year, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but in 1902, it was a lot of money to a working man. Um, They exempted Confederate veterans and their their sons. Property owners were okay. Otherwise, you had, if you went to register, you had to go to the registrar, and he could open the Constitution of Virginia to any page and ask you to interpret it. Well, I mean, there are provisions of the Virginia Constitution I'm not sure I could interpret properly, but certainly if I went into the registrar and I'm the wrong color, I'm a person of color, nothing I say is going to satisfy him. He, my explanation will not suffice, so I get turned away. Well, what's interesting there when you ask about public reaction is that um, though the African-Americans were the principal target, 
uh, the disenfranchisement of blacks carried with it the disenfranchisement of a number of poor whites who also lost the vote so that a number of poor white people were ousted from the ballot just as right alongside blacks. Now, you would think that the public would see, hear about this new constitution and say, wait a minute, you know, many of us are going to be disenfranchised. And you think they'd vote, vote it down. Uh, the 1971 constitution was approved by overwhelming majority. You'd expect the 1902 proposal to be defeated, that people would vote no. Well, the, the framers, the delegates at that 1901-1902 convention thought of, obviously thought about it. They, they were morally pledged. When they ran for election to the convention, they had promised to submit the new constitution to referendum, to be voted on by the people. Well, they got to thinking about it, and I suspect they said, you know, a lot of people who are being disenfranchised to, by this proposal may vote against it. It's a logical assumption. So the convention simply promulgated the Constitution. Instead of having a referendum, they simply announced to the people of Virginia, guess what? You've got to now have a new Constitution. Well, <laughs> that did seem to it certainly wasn't consistent with their promises when they were elected. So uh, there was a challenge to that Constitution uh, and the Supreme Court of Virginia in 1904 said it was okay to promulgate the Constitution. They, they upheld it. So public, the, the white conservative public, no doubt approved of what was being done. White supremacy was a fairly generally held idea in those days. But black Virginians certainly wouldn't have liked it. And I think poor Virginians, to the extent they thought about it, wouldn't, wouldn't have either. But sadly enough, the white supremacy flavor of the 1902 Constitution is consistent with the general era of that era, uh, not only in the South, but in the North as well. The anti-black sentiment in Virginia would have been paralleled by anti-immigrant notions in the North, uh, as Italians and Eastern Europeans and others were coming to America in great numbers. There was a sort of Traditionally, sort of uh, white Protestant Americans of that time were as disturbed in the North by the immigrants as white Southerners in the South were by, by the notion that blacks might be part of the political calculus. So America was not a very, there may have been progress in some respect, but not, not in ethnic or racial terms. Indeed, that was also the period of imperialism. The Spanish-American War had just, just been fought. Uh, in 1898, we had acquired the Philippines and Puerto Rico, and we joined the uh, galaxy of imperial powers with the kind of notion, a sort of a missionary instinct that uh, America was to export its advantages, its, its place in the sun to other peoples, to the Filipinos, for example. So I have to say that the 1902 Constitution not only reflects racism and white supremacy in Virginia itself, but actually partook of a sort of a more general notion of uh, what America was really about. You think, for example, of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, not strictly a Southern phenomenon. The uh, state 
in the 1920s, the state that had the most members of the Klan uh, was Indiana, not a southern state. So uh, 1902 in that constitution uh, is unhappily a metaphor, not only for the state of Virginia society and politics, but also a lot of what was happening in the country generally. So I think from here, I would like to segue into the second part of our interview. Um, Why did it take over 60 years for Virginia to decide to reform the state constitution of 1902? That's an awfully good question. Um, After the 1902 constitution went into effect, blacks were virtually wiped out as part of the electorate. Um, in 1867, after the Civil War, uh, blacks made up about half the voting population of Virginia. In the first general election after the adoption of the 1902 Constitution, they represent less than 5%. So they were virtually excluded from the, from the polls. Moreover, uh, they restricted franchise generally. The fact that the poor whites were often excluded was the basis for what became the Byrd machine in Virginia. Harry Byrd, who was governor in 1928, U.S. Senator for many years after that, uh, had a very efficient machine. It was uh, sort of a gentleman's club in a a way. It didn't have to use violence and the like to be in power. It was a very genteel machine, but it was a machine. And it ruled Virginia by way of the rings in the the various courthouses in Virginia, based on the very restricted franchise. Virginia, compared to other states, had a very low percentage of people actually voting in elections. So that was a state of affairs right on into the 1950s. And things began to change after Brown versus Board in 1954, when the Supreme Court ordered desegregation of public schools. And then it really began to change in the 1960s. So when you think about the time span between 1902 and the 1971 Constitution over almost 70 years time, um, the 1960s are the fulcrum. That's that's the turning point because the 1960s were in many ways a terrible decade. You had assassinations of Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Robert, Robert Kennedy, uh, arson and looting and riots in cities anti-Vietnam protests, a number of things going on in the country, more to the point in thinking about why the Virginia Constitution finally uh, was seen to to, to need change, was a change in federal law. Uh, The Supreme Court in the early 60s decreed one person, one vote in legislative apportionment, both Congress and the states. Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and that Uh, Virginia and the other southern states were under the jurisdiction of that act, which required that any any changes you made of any kind in a voting law at the local or state level in those states would have to be approved by the district court in D.C. or by the Justice Department. So federal law was clamped on voting practices generally. The Supreme Court struck down the poll tax, declared it to be unconstitutional. So there were as a whole range of changes in federal constitutional and statutory law, which basically, which really up the ev, lit a fire in effect under Virginia to change the constitution. 
there were also changes in Virginia itself, demographically, socially, that there was more move to the cities, the urban corridor from Northern Virginia to Hampton Roads was emerging. There was a, the beginnings of a two-party system in Virginia, the Republican Party, which had been sort of relegated to minority status for many decades, was was appearing. Um, Linwood Holton, the first Republican governor since Reconstruction, was was elected. So change was in the air. And I think it's fascinating that the person who initiated that change was Governor Mills Godwin. Because Godwin is a state senator, had moved up through the machine, the bird machine. He'd been a conservative. He'd supported massive resistance. You would not have thought of Mills Godwin as a reformer, but it was Godwin who, as governor, asked the General Assembly for authority to appoint a commission on constitutional revision, uh, which, which he did in 1968. How is the Commission on Constitutional Revision chosen, and how are you chosen to be the executive director of this commission? Well, when that process got underway, Godwin appointed a, a remarkable uh, set of men to be commissioners. Uh, among the, their ranks were, was Lewis Powell, who letters later sat on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Hardy Dillard, later a member of the World Court at The Hague, uh, Oliver Hill, who was the leading civil rights attorney of that era. He'd been involved in the Brown versus Board cases. Uh, it included Colgate Darden, former UVA governor, former president of the University of Virginia. I mean, an absolutely first-class, remarkable group of people. So they had a lot of, lot of, they were the ones who went to work in the Commission on Constitutional Revision. There were 11 commissioners altogether. Albertus Harrison, a former governor, was, was chairman. And they, they set work in drafted replacing the 1902 Constitution with a modern document. Um, I came into the picture at that point. They, they needed a, a kind of an architect, a draftsman, someone to be their executive director. And they came to me. I just joined the law faculty. I was just a kid on the block. Uh, but I had the confidence of young professors had that, hey, you want to write a constitution? No problem. I can, I can do that. Well, I mean, I don't know what I thought. Maybe I was thinking it was like writing a will or a deed. You just go to the form book and copy out the provisions. Well, <laughs> a lot more to it than that. Uh, I did, I, at that point, when I accepted the job, I was dimly aware of the old Virginia Constitution, but I'd never read the document, never sat down and read, the, read through it. Of course, I did that as soon as I was appointed. And when I did, I was amazed at what I found, not only the discrimination, discrimination that we've, we've talked about, but it read like a statute book. It had all sorts of detail about the State Corporation Commission, the hours of the day it would be open, I mean, all kinds of things that belong in the code of Virginia, not in the Constitution. There was even a provision that said if you fought a duel in Virginia or seconded a duel, you lost your right to vote. Well, we decided maybe duel was not, dueling was not a burning social issue in Virginia in the 1960s <laughs> and 70s. So we took that out. So if you've noticed dueling has come back, you have to blame the Commission on Constitutional Revision <laughs> and its executive director for that. Well, I signed on the job and um, I had lawyers to help me. The, we divided the commission into five subcommittees and each subcommittee had a lawyer helping them out, usually a law professor <clears throat> or some other lawyer. 
And we worked through the spring and summer and fall of 1968. We were under tight, short fuse. We were able to do the entire job in about a half a year. So we were working on a short fuse in 1968 through the spring, the summer, and the fall. We reported to the governor and general assembly in, on January the 1st, 1969, the commission's uh, recommendations. Well, of course, the next step in the process was then the receiving and reviewing the report of the commission by the general assembly. The legislators could do what they please with the commission's report. I was very well, I was really impressed with the commission itself. I mean, working with people like Oliver Hill and Lewis Powell was just an amazing experience for me. But I was also impressed with the General Assembly when they received the report. I frankly, I went to Richmond. I was asked to be counsel to the General Assembly to, to be their advisor, to explain the commission's work and help them help them with, with their job in Richmond. And I was I was concerned that the legislators would succumb to special interests. They would mess up the commission's draft. And they would put in bad provisions and take out good ones. And I, I have to say I was uh, impressed with the way the legislators rose to the occasion, that they really took the job seriously. They had a sense of the, of the common good. There was no partisanship. Uh, there was no real ideology. The legislators simply tried to do a, to do a good job. So they approved of most of what the commission had done. They obviously made some adjustments, mostly mostly for the better. So finally, after the end of the 1969 session, technically, the new constitution, what became the 1971 constitution, technically, it was an amendment to the old constitution. So because... In that sense, it required, of course, it was a replacement, but still technically one big amendment. So um, that meant it had to be approved by two sessions of the legislature with an election of the House of Delegates intervening. So what the 1969 session did had to be reaffirmed by the 1970 session. You couldn't change a word of it. It all had to be word for word what was approved in 69. So this 1970 session did that, and then um, it had to go to the people. The final step, of course, was popular referendum. Can you tell me more about the referendum campaign? Yes. Uh, again, I, I was directly involved. Uh, Linwood Holton was governor by that time, and he asked me if I would direct, would organize and, and direct the referendum campaign. Well, now that was a real challenge because, I mean, I, do, doing the drafting part and even the legislative adoption part was closer to my expertise as a constitutional lawyer, but the referendum campaign was politics, taking it to the people. I'd never worked in politics. I'd never worked in a campaign. You know, I'd maybe been a poll worker when I was a kid, working, handing out about uh, sample ballots or something, but I was not one who'd been involved in large campaigning. So I, I agreed to do it, and I decided I should do whatever one would do if you were running a campaign for statewide office. I mean, remember, we, we didn't have a flesh and blood candidate. We were trying to sell a piece of paper, which is a bit abstract and remote. And my principal concern was that people just wouldn't understand it would mi misunderstand it, maybe not know enough about it, 
and if so, we'd simply vote no. But random came. So I took leave of absence from the law school. I went all over Virginia making talks to groups from Big Stone Gap in the far west to Anancock on Eastern Shore and everything in between. I think I visited just about every county and city in Virginia. And then in addition to my making talks, um, we had a speaker's bureau so that the local Rotary Club wanted a speaker on the Constitution. We could furnish one. We had billboards and television advertising and bumper stickers and lapel pins, all the paraphernalia of a campaign, um, all paid for by private money. There was no state money involved at all. We raised a laughable amount, about $100,000. Today, today you, you could hardly get started in a campaign with $100,000, but it, 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 was, it sufficed at that time. We had a lot of volunteer help. A lot of people pitched in. And what we did was, at the state and local level, was to be sure we involved Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. We wanted a campaign that was a campaign across the board uh, to show that there was no ideological basis for the Constitution. We, <laughs> we had some opposition. Uh, it was my first encounter with conspiracy theories. Uh, the conspiracy theory was that this proposed Virginia Constitution could not have been written in Virginia because it was too radical. It just wasn't Virginia. It wasn't traditional Virginia. It must have been written, I don't know, where Beijing or, or Moscow or, or worse yet, maybe in New York or Chicago, <laughs> but somewhere other than Virginia. And of course, I had to laugh at that because if it was a conspiracy, it was a conspiracy that included Colgate, Darden, Lewis, Powell, Oliver Hill, and 140 members of the Virginia legislature. It had to be history's largest conspiracy. So on the extreme right, there were people who complained. They were not very effective. The sort of conservative leadership of Virginia were on board. We, we had those folks as well. We had um, resolutions passed by major statewide groups in support of the Constitution, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, the labor unions, the uh, crusade for voters, a black group in Richmond, and so forth. So we really had a very broad-based campaign so when the time came, when election day came, we got um, 72% of the vote, which if you were running for office, you'd be thrilled with that. That would be, that'd be a landslide. Uh, we'd lost a few counties on the North Carolina border, Charlotte, uh, Mecklenburg, Prince Edward, the, the few of those counties, because down there, the charge was made that the new constitution would bring about school busing. And in the early 70s, school busing was a big issue. It just, it just was being implemented by federal district courts around the country. And the opponents of the proposed Constitution said they're going to centralize the education system and make uh, school busing the order of the day. Well, we luckily that charge didn't really take hold statewide. So we, we put it into effect and it became effective on um, July the 1st, 1971. So having worked on this referendum campaign, and specifically I'm referring to the conspiracy theories, um, do you have any sort of comments to make on the current state of dissemination of information and news? Well, <laughs> you know, 1971 in many ways was a different era. Um, I hesitate to call it the golden age of Virginia politics, but it was a 
a time when the leaders to left and right, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, of whatever stripe, understood common ground. They could come together in the commission, in the legislature, and in the referendum campaign. They could come together to achieve the common good. And they were able, I think they were sensible enough to write a document which, while reform-minded, wasn't too radical. Um, It did put behind us the unhappy legacy of white supremacy and and racism we now have in the Constitution and anti-discrimination clause, no governmental discrimination on the basis of race or color or national origin, or by the way, sex, even though Virginia did not at that time ratify the national ERA, it had a little ERA in the state constitution. Uh, Education reform was achieved. It was, let's say, a progressive document. I think it would be, frankly, difficult, perhaps impossible, to do the same job today. Um, I think we can amend the Constitution, as we, we do from time to time, but the notion of calling a convention or having a wholesale rewrite of the Constitution would, I think, run up on the shoals of um, not only partisanship and ideology, but uh, conspiracy theories. I think the conspiracy theorists would come out of the woodwork. They'd be, and and the single interest people would be heard from. Whatever the single interest was, whether it's abortion or guns or you, you name the issue on either side, people who have that persuasion, if they didn't get, get what they wanted in the Constitution, they'd be against the whole thing. I think it'd be very difficult to write a new Constitution and even more difficult to get it uh, to get it ratified by the people. That being so, I mean, the, we, we live in such an unhappy stage of partisanship and division and, and the like. Um, and the, the politics of the nation has filtered down to Virginia. Virginia's politics used to be more isolated from these national trends. That's not true anymore. So I think in the in this state of affairs, I mean, it's democracy in some ways is being threatened by what's going on now. I mean, the, the, the notion that the 2020 election was illegitimate, that the president was not legally, uh, the election was a fraud. I mean, that's such a fiction, but unfortunately bought into by lots of people. I mean, unfortunately, it, it's taken charge and it's taken hold in certain quarters. That being so, I mean, I've still, I remain an optimist about American, the American system, and I think a healthy part of it is, in Virginia at least, to use uh, the 50th anniversary of the Virginia Constitution as an occasion to think about the fundamentals. I think it's a, it's a good Constitution, but it's not perfect. Uh, no doubt you can think of changes ought to be made, amendments that might be brought about, uh, some that I would support, uh, that I would be in favor of. But I think if you look at the document and, and think of it as a way that the people of Virginia express their aspirations about how a free people govern themselves in, a, in, in modern society, the state constitution is not a bad textbook. The federal constitution is pretty remote. As we've agreed, it's very hard to amend, very rarely amended. But if you think change is needed in the way Virginians govern their own affairs, the state constitution is there to be to be adapted to that time. I'm reminded once again of 
what I quoted earlier, namely George Mason's language that free government depends on the frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. And I think constitutional government depends in so many ways, not just on having good people in office, but it depends on um, a constitutional culture. And by that, I mean that there's a certain assumptions you make about government that people should buy into, and it requires civic education, not only education of school children, but civic education of the general, general populace. And as I say, I think going back to thinking about examining, critiquing the present Virginia Constitution offers an opportunity to, uh, for that exercise in civic responsibility. So to circle back to this document, what are the fundamental principles and the provisions of the 1971 Constitution? Well, I think the, maybe the, the central features of that Constitution were as follows. First, the repudiation of white supremacy and, and, and discrimination. That the, one of the foundational stones of the present Constitution is equality, the anti-discrimination principle, the access of all, all, all uh, qualified voters to the ballot place without without uh, limits uh, unnecessary limits being placed upon that. I think the uh, notion of a fair and just society is one of the cornerstones of the Virginia Constitution. Secondly, I think education that it's not enough to have access to the ballot. You want an educated populace so they can act upon, they can internalize the teachings of, of free government. And in that, I think the education article <clears throat> is important. The framers of the 1971 Constitution actually included um, education of the Bill of Rights <clears throat> in the, um, alongside the traditional rights, such as free speech and free exercise of religion, the Bill of Rights in, in Virginia puts education as a, as a fundamental value. Uh, the framers actually draw, drew on Thomas Jefferson's bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge, a 1777 document, drew some of its language and put it into the present Bill of Rights. So I think the central focus on education as a fundamental value, not simply as, some, as a function of government, but something more basic than that, I think that's one of the fundamentals as well. Thirdly, I think um, and a functioning government that works readily, an accountable government that people can look to to uh, carry out the, the people's wishes. The old instrument of government was fairly clunky. There were, there were problems in, in implementation. The present constitution is much cleaner and it, it really um, enables accountable government Indeed, uh, during the campaign, as I was traveling around Virginia, I said, I think one of the features of this proposed constitution is that it brings government closer to the people. It is it, it uh, creates accountable government. I think that's one of the premises. So I think in, in every respect, um, the Virginia constitution, I should not say in every respect, there are ways in which it's still imperfect, but it is based on, on fundamental principle. It's, it reflects the kinds of teachings that, frankly, I carried abroad. I had the privilege of working with constitution makers in 
some foreign countries, especially after the collapse of communism. After the Berlin Wall came down, I spent a fair amount of time in places like Prague and Warsaw and Budapest, uh, comparing notes with framers of post-communist constitutions. And I didn't try to, I didn't hold out the U.S. Constitution as a model. It's clearly not. You couldn't simply copy it. But I did say, we, I think the lessons of America's constitu constitutional history um, are that there are certain fundamentals which you need to have in play to have constitutional government. Uh, for example, uh, it, the fundamental proposition that you, f you have an election, you lose the election, you step aside, you, you let the other side get on with the process of governing, and you become the loyal opposition to you. You wait and fight out the next election, hoping that you'll win that one. I mean, these simple things, which of course are ignored in so many parts of the world. We sadly have a trend to authoritarianism in so many places, obviously China and Russia, but also places like uh, Turkey or Hungary or a number of the other countries. So I hope I wouldn't seem chauvinistic if I suggested to people embarking on the writing of a constitution in some other part of the world that they actually could look at the experience in writing American state constitutions, including Virginia, because they are periodic exercises. They require framers, legislators, the general public to think about the, uh, the foundational principles that, uh, that animate free government. What has worked from the 1971 Constitution, and if you'd like to segue into this while you're talking, what has, or not what hasn't worked, but what do you think should be amended? Well, that's a fascinating question. I have thought about the 1971 document. Obviously, we're, especially because we are at the 50th anniversary, and I can think of things that we thought had been dealt with, uh, but turned out not to work as well as one would have hoped. Uh, in particular, you have to remember that whatever the framers of a constitution think they have done, no matter what their intentions are, uh, the courts have the final say. Well, I guess the people have the final say, but the courts are the ones who interpret the document. To give you an exact concrete example of something that I thought had been dealt with, but, but turned out not to work, we put into the constitution in drawing legislative districts that those districts had to be compact and contiguous. Now, that's not self-defining language, but it's you could, you could look at a map and tell if something is compact or contiguous. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court of Virginia, for whom I have great respect, um, are unduly deferential to the legislature. They, they understandably are very um, reluctant to second-guess the legislature on reapportionment. So they've basically uh, upheld legislative apportionment that I would have thought was not consistent with the constitutional command of compact and contiguous. There was a case, for example, where part of a district was in Portsmouth and the rest of the district was in Hampton on opposite sides of Hampton Roads, that enormous body of water. And the Supreme Court of Virginia said, well, that's contiguous because the two parts of the district are joined by a body of water. Well, I just can't buy into that kind of reasoning. But I think it's because the courts just don't like to have to tell legislators what to do when they're drawing district lines. So that 
what I thought dealt with things like partisan gerrymandering turned out not to work well. And that's why we have now, as, as, as I'm sure most people know, a commission made up part of legislators, partly of citizens, that's looking at the redrawing of district boundaries. We'll see how that works. I personally would have preferred having a commission made up entirely of citizens, but at least the, what we put into place is a step in the right direction. To give you another concrete example, um, the voting rights of felons. I think the commission in drafting Article 2, the franchise article of the 1971 Constitution, uh, did not loosen up sufficiently the uh, prospects for restoring voting rights to former felons. Virginia has one of the strictest, strictest regimes in the country that if you've been convicted of a felony, you lose your right to vote permanently unless and until the governor restores that right. Well, I think once you've served your time and you're back in society, you've paid your debt, I think restoration of the franchise should be automatic. So that's, that's a change I would make. Um, there are probably some others like that. They're concrete. The Dillon's rule, for example, the rule that says that localities only have those um, powers which are specifically given to that locality by the legislature. Um, I would reverse that rule. I'm a, a Jefferson, sufficiently a Jeffersonian that I believe in local government. I think counties and cities should have all powers not specifically denied them by state law. That would be, it, I think, government close to the people is more responsive. It doesn't always get things right, but I think it's just simply a good principle. So I think these are adjustments. I personally, even if I thought we could rewrite the Constitution, I would not overhaul it. I've already said I think that would be a dangerous prospect. But I think that it ought to be studied closely by people. They should look at the Constitution Think about specific concrete issues. Um, should the governor, for example, be allowed to run for a second term? Virginia is the only state in the country where the governor cannot run for a successive term. We have the one-term limit. Well, we ought to debate whether that's a good idea or not. That would be uh, a, an important question. Um, what I would not do is load up the Constitution with a lot of social issues. I mean, there's a temptation if people care deeply enough about a particular issue to say, well, we ought to put it in the Constitution. And sometimes that's too easy to do. Um, for example, we now have in the Constitution an amendment that guarantees the right to hunt and fish. I'm not aware that the right to hunt and fish was ever in any kind of danger in Virginia. But when that was proposed in the legislature, I mean, what legislator is going to vote against the right to hunt and fish? So, so they put it on the ballot and people people adopted it. So we have to be careful not to turn the Constitution into a statute book. I think I, that would be a, a, a part of my advice to the people of Virginia. <laughs> this is the 50th anniversary, and I was just wondering if there's anything that you've been reflecting on heavily coming up on this anniversary. Well, I have indeed. I mean, I've... I'd, I'd like to think I'm sufficiently honest with myself to look at this document and say, does it work? Does it do what Virginians need? <clears throat> does it respond to the, to the uh, requirements of our generation and time? And as I say, I think it's, it's pretty good. I think it has not done, I think it survived the test of time pretty well, but I've been giving it a lot of thought. 
Uh, there have been events that have taken place. Uh, the Library of Virginia had a program on July the 1st. The governor had a reception at the executive mansion celebrating the occasion, musing on what we accomplished in 1971. And what has struck me, I was not really prepared for this. Uh, I had always felt the Constitution was a distinct break with 1902, that it repudiated white supremacy, repudiated the and the discriminatory flavor of the turn of the 20th century. I didn't realize that the 50th anniversary would come at precisely the moment when the entire nation has been preoccupied with racial justice. The, the death of George Floyd, the emergence of Black Lives Matter, any number of ways in which clearly Americans are thinking more than they used to about uh, racial justice in America. And I think that I'm prepared to say that the mainstream of what the 1971 Constitution accomplished, accomplishes is in line with some of this rethinking. That uh, Take Confederate monuments, for example. They're coming down in Charlottesville and Richmond and a number of other places. Those monuments went up not right after the Civil War, not in the during the Reconstruction period, but a generation or two later. They mostly went up in the early 1900s um, on Monument Avenue in Richmond, uh, in the parks in Charlottesville and other places. They're coming down now. And I think that change of attitude, what it is we celebrate by in, in public spaces in Virginia, on Monument Avenue, in the Charlottesville parks and so forth, the rethinking of how we want to uh, sort of signify what we care about, what we believe in, in public spaces, has an interesting parallel in the Virginia Constitution. That just as the 1902 Constitution, when it became effective about the time that the Lee Monument was put up on Monument Avenue in Richmond, similarly, the 50th anniversary of the 1971 Constitution is a reminder, in my judgment at least, that the new Constitution, it's not Valhalla. I mean, we're not there yet. There's a lot of work to do, but it is an important step in the right direction. That it's historic that once again, we've begun to define the political community in inclusive terms, that we're back on the track that was partly accomplished in the 19th century from 1776 to 1870, the notion of opening up participation in government to more people, not, not fewer, interrupted as it was in 1902, that we, as of 1971, were once again headed in the right direction. And to repeat myself, they say the work's not all done. There's obviously more to do. I think it's not so much a matter of what's in the Constitution. It's a matter now of acting on the Constitution. In public policy, in statutes that are passed, and in general, how the people of Virginia decide to behave. So I think that, to me, is one of the very appropriate reasons to be thinking about Virginia's Constitution on its 50th anniversary. We've talked about how none of these documents are concrete and they continue to evolve. What do you think is the importance of reflecting on Virginia's six or seven iterations of the Constitution and, and remembering our history? Well, you know, it's so easy to ignore history. I mean, it's yesterday, right? Although uh, I think it was William Faulkner who said the past never is past. It's still present. 
And in the South, that's especially true. I mean, I was born and raised in Virginia, and I, I'm very much aware of how we feel in the South about family, about land, about place, about tradition. That's an important part of our heritage. But we tend to be ahistorical in that we, we often will simply ignore, maybe not ha even have learned about, but certainly not tend to remember uh, things that happened yesterday. When I was growing up in Richmond, it was very much the lost cause kind of mentality. And the textbooks that I was given in public schools in those days uh, didn't talk much about the evil side of slavery, the bad side of Southern history. I think it's more addressed in education today. But I think as one reflects, looks back over those several Virginia constitutions, starting with 1776, running through 1971, and through the pleasant present time, it's a chance to revisit history. It's a chance to think about what happened then and why. Uh, it's a chance to say, what went wrong? What can we repair? As well as a chance to say, well, what, what went right? And I don't think revisiting history should be an exercise in self-flagellation. Of course, we should recognize the mistakes that we're making and try to put them right. But there's an enormous amount of good that's very positive in Virginia's constitutional history. I, I keep going back to the Declaration of Rights. I think that 1776 document takes its place along with a handful of the most important constitutional documents in the entire uh, Western world. It's right up there with Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights, and other documents like that. And it's, it glows with aspirations of what free government can be. It's amazing that the people of that generation, George Mason and his colleagues, could um, write something which has stood the test of time so well, as I think the Virginia Declaration has done. So Virginians who are asked to think about their constitution, its predecessors, its general history, um, should be thinking about the good and the bad, what we would like to retain, what we would like to reject, what does it all mean? And what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be part of the civic enterprise that we like to celebrate in this country? I think those are the sort of things that I hope people would be thinking about as we mark the, um, the 50th anniversary.